Today on our podcast, we have Mark Hoffman. He and I met back in Chicago days in Chippy, and he's moved all the way through several positions doing machine learning and data science, and now landed himself a position at the Jet Propulsion Lab from NASA. Welcome, Mark. How are you doing today, Mark? Doing pretty well. Thanks for having me on. Hi, Mark. How are you doing? Hey, pretty good. Glad to be here. Why don't we start off a little bit about your progression? You're now at NASA, is that correct? And tell us how you ended up there. Yeah, sure. So um, this is actually a very interesting like uh, story with a lot of twists and turns. Um, but I originally started uh, out in undergrad as a uh, physics and math major. Um, doing a lot of that stuff. I was physics, math, and a little bit of pre-med there. Um, did the whole MCAT thing. I en- ended up deciding that I didn't really want to go down the route of being a doctor after a couple internships and um, the whole doctor route seemed a little depressing. So uh, also while I was an in undergrad though, I was working in a nuclear physics lab um, where we were doing a lot of data analysis of uh, nuclear physics experiments that were run up at uh, Michigan State University. I went to Augustana College in the Quad Cities um, on the border of Illinois and Iowa, but the professor there had a very close tie into uh, Michigan State. And so he always brought a lot of the research work back there. And so that was probably my first time touching data in any real sense. Um, But so essentially, once I got to the point of deciding that I didn't want to be a doctor, I was looking around for different types of grad programs I could apply all this like physics and math knowledge to. Um, and at that time, the whole like data space started to really ramp up. Um, that was right around the same time that like the like AlexNet deep learning paper came out, um, and people were starting to uh, recognize a data scientist as something that could add like immense amounts of value. And so I ended up finding this grad program out in North Carolina um, at the uh, North Carolina State uh, Institute for Advanced Analytics. Um, and essentially it was like a master's of analytics, data science, going through all the statistical modeling, machine learning, uh, types of knowledge. Um, but essentially there I learned like essentially all the modeling skills, all the data management skills. Um, I was working with a government agency at the time as well, um, as part of that graduate program where I was able to sort of see how data science works in real life at the like, uh, business government level. Um, and after grad school and having that experience in government, um, I essentially decided to hop off the uh, corporate bandwagon and go straight into startup mode. Um, that's when I moved back to Chicago. Um, I had previously been doing a lot of uh, sort of like freelance work with other friends that I had in undergrad at the time as well. Um, we started sort of like my juniorish year of undergrad, just doing these like one-off platforms or one-off like website designs for people. Um, but essentially moving back to Chicago, we decided that we were going to build larger scale software applications. Um, and so that's, that's just what we did. Our like first application was like in the transportation logistics space. Um, we've done a lot of stuff in like construction as well and real estate as well. Um, but essentially all these different software platforms had the idea of integrating data and making data useful in an automation sense to a number of different businesses that uh, traditionally have been very uh, have been very traditional in their operations and didn't really have much technology infused in them. Um, but essentially through there, uh, we had a lot of success through these different software platforms, learned a ton of stuff going through 
essentially the whole knowledge cycle of trying to set up like uh, our own servers for hosting on like DigitalOcean, setting up our own loan balancers, all the way through like becoming very well versed in AWS. Um, but then, yeah, we, we had a lot of success at that point. We ended up, uh, uh, or then from there, I ended up doing uh, some work at Blue Cross Blue Shield, um, downtown Chicago. Um, I was helping them in a, a data science machine learning group who uh, was focused on a wide spectrum of problems there. Um, like one of the big problems was uh, optimizing PPO groups for physicians. Um, and as part of that, we had to measure risk associated with uh, with patients by looking at claim data. And so there's a lot of uh, risk modeling there, um, more of your traditional machine learning, traditional structured data sense of things. But then I was also involved in a uh, an anomaly detection project as well, looking for fraud, waste, and abuse cases um, from physicians for the different claims being submitted. Um, that part was actually, uh, I was delving into a lot of the newer types of like uh, neural network based deep learning techniques for time series modeling. Um, so uh, at that time too, there's a lot of work in deep learning um, around unstructured data, right? Around like images and not really as much text at that time, um, although text is like uh, blown up a ton now. Um, but I was specifically focused on structured data problems with deep learning time series. But it just so happened to be that uh, I had a colleague as well that was working at the uh, NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory, where I am right now, um, who he was working on a very similar problem, but related to spacecraft telemetry data. And the whole idea was uh, you have the spacecraft who has thousands upon thousands of telemetry channels. Um, and traditional anomaly detection methodologies were essentially just setting threshold alarms for those different telemetry channels. And you'd end up with this case where because the state of the spacecraft changes so often, you'd end up with a ton of false positive alarms and essentially the operations engineers become desensitized to those alarms. And so what he was doing, um, which directly matched up to all of my uh, fraud prediction stuff at Blue Cross, was uh, dynamic time series models in order to adjust to the current state of a given system of structured data. And uh, based on the uh, dynamically adjusting your model to that state, how do you predict anomalies and drill down into uh, reasoning from those? And so, um, yeah, I hit it off with him and I ended up making the move down to Pasadena about, uh, about a year and a half ago now in April of 2018. <clears throat> and since then, I've been working on a number of different projects spanning AutoML, uncertainty quantification, uh, optimization for the deep space network. Um, yeah, a lot of very interesting things down at uh, JPL since then. But yeah, that's sort of the high level journey of what I went through. Um, a lot of twists and turns, got my hands dirty with software, machine learning, deep learning, statistics. So, Mark, uh, Brian will probably get deeper into how you actually deploy and practice um, deep learning and AI. Um, I'd like to take you back to First Class Technology Corporation, which looks like from your LinkedIn, you successfully sold. So congratulations on that. I mean, that's Thanks. that's not easy to do with your first startup, for sure. Most people don't get that far. Um, mm -hmm. 
Now, in the description, it covers a lot of different categories. You go from luxury brand engagement to um, consumer insights for corporate entertainment, hospitality, and event industries, for example. Maybe explain a little bit about um, the relevance there from setting you down into uh, deep learning um, with what's available now. Maybe uh, share how you would have um, done that startup differently. Sure. So yeah, when we started, uh, when we started first class, the whole premise and idea was essentially trying to infuse modern technology into in industry, um, into this, this uh, black car luxury transportation industry, whose tools for the most part were still uh, in the era much before now. Um, so like you walk into one of these buildings and everyone uh, is still making phone calls for all, all the operations. People are writing a lot of day-to-day uh, -day operational items down on a piece of paper and passing these pieces of paper around to each other. So the first step that we tackled um, was essentially trying to modernize and automate every single, uh, every single piece of the daily operations of these luxury transportation companies. Before you get into what you would do differently now with the tools you work with on an everyday basis, um, it sounds like you were like five to 10% away from being Uber though. To an extent. So like what, what we were doing was we were still keeping a lot of human in the loop. Um, and that's a theme that uh, you'll see, like, especially like human in the loop for machine learning and like AI applications, you'll see that come up like all the time um, versus we didn't necessarily have the resources, especially being like a first startup, um, not really super well funded. Um, there's a lot of the sort of like sweat equity type thing of putting in the very, very long hours every week. Um, because we didn't necessarily have those resources that like Uber and Lyft could afford in terms of either just like giving away, uh, giving away subsidized products, um, or just like build up enough data. Um, we really had to keep the human in the loop for the majority of the, uh, majority of the technology operation. So like we still have a dispatcher, the dispatcher would essentially be able to automate 80% of his job so he could uh expand essentially the efficiency of the logistics company by a decent amount the kind of question i have for someone who's at nasa is how much can the human be in the loop in some of your cases that you're talking about and how does that uh, play into when you're talking about putting something into space yeah, I mean, at NASA, there's a number of different use cases that uh, that I'm actually currently working on that no matter how good the machine learning and AI gets, um, there'll always be some domain knowledge that you have to have a human loop. Uh, one great example is uh, I'm, I've been working on a, a deep space network scheduling uh, research initiative for the past year or so. Um, essentially, the, the goal is... Uh, our, Let's back up to give you a little bit of background. The Deep Space Network is comprised of three different uh, three different locations around the world. One's in Goldstone, California. One's in uh, Madrid, Spain, and one's in Canberra, Australia. Um, the idea is to have them on uh, very different sides of the world, so that as the Earth spins around, you can have uh, optimal coverage to any number of spacecraft that you have flying. 
the current process of the way that it's been operating for the longest time is uh, very based off of heuristics. Um, and those heuristics might be uh, everything from let me see where all these antennas, like as the antennas uh, are rotating around, these spacecraft are only visible during certain periods of time. So let's just start a sort of like a first in, like a first in place, uh, a requested track onto that schedule, then go all the way through and then go through a couple of heuristic methods to try and resolve conflicts. Or maybe if uh, missions requesting like an eight hour track, you can split that into two separate four hour tracks on two different antenna. Um, we're trying to move from that much more to an automated methodology where maybe heuristics can get us to 60% with the last 40% having to be very human intensive involved for uh, splitting up the schedule and making sure the missions that required the amount of resources that they're at a critical stage in their mission, as opposed to possibly just a spacecraft that's, uh, that's just en route and you just have to make sure it's still alive but it has a couple of years to get to its destination. Um, those types of like mission priorities are very hard to model within any sort of like optimization framework. So like maybe a heuristics based approach, which could get you to like 60% before we're trying to take uh, some of these more modern machine learning techniques and take that 60% to maybe like a 80, 85, 90%, and then have that last little bit be the human loop of knowing that uh, a particular mission is might be having trouble with a certain subsystem on a spacecraft and they need extra time, uh, extra telemetry to sort of diagnose what's happening, or a, a mission might be in a critical state. In my, my opinion, I've always thought of NASA back in the 60s and, and the place where everybody wanted to work, right? I mean, every, every young man, my parent, my dad's age, you know, was born in the early 40s, wanted to work at NASA. Um, and what is the, uh, what is the challenge? What is the one day when you're like, man, this is hard, uh, or, you know, have you ever regretted it or do you, um, or you just love every moment of it? <laughs> um, I, so I, I do love every moment of it. There's a lot of very interesting projects. Um, the one downside to that is though, there are just so many interesting projects, right? And so while, uh, while I could spend like all of my time just really, really digging into this like DSN scheduling problem, for example, um, I'm also uh, being pulled on a number of other projects for certain skill sets. And it becomes this thing of there's just, there's so many things that, uh, that you want to do and that are really, really like uh, important for you to do. Um, but it's sort of tempering that down and controlling what your focus is on. And Mark, Mark, that sounds like there's a resource problem in terms of there's not enough talent at NASA with your type of experience or skill sets. I'm actually part of a new group there as well. So uh, the group that I joined is uh, called the IEC or the Innovation Experience Center. Um, we sit directly underneath the uh, Chief Technology and Innovation Officer of JPL. Um, and I think the group is only three or so years old. And it started out with like one or two people. Um, but to sort of give you a, a frame of reference of how how important these different like new data science and AI techniques are for uh, for earth science and 
for uh, all space exploration in general. Our group of like one to two people three years ago, uh, I think we just crossed like 19 people or 20 people um, in this sort of co-located area that everyone, uh, everyone's sort of a general purpose data science, deep learning, uh, cloud engineer, software developer, um, but all with some sort of focus in bringing data into being useful in different applications. Um, so yeah, the, the need for the skills are expanding drastically. And I mean, that comes from compute getting much better and just these different techniques continually getting better and better every year. And do you believe it's moving uh, in the industry overall, not just at NASA? Do you ever believe that it's moving too fast? Or what are, what are the precautionary tales? I always do this, you know, man versus machine, machine versus man versus machine <laughs> analogy here. But is there any is there any precautionary, uh, what, what keeps you 19 in check after growing at such a quick pace? Even if you look around an industry and there's this huge, uh, this is huge theme that keeps going around of ethics for essentially anyone that has the power of, or has the skill set of um, creating algorithms on top of data to then be placed into automated systems. Um, right. You, you'll see a, a, a ton of speakers that keep emphasizing how important this is. And, and it really is. Um, so look back into, I think it was January or so of this past year. Um, open AI, they released uh, one of their language models uh, called GPT-2. Um, but so the, it was actually sort of funny. The, the way they released it is they had this blog post and essentially went down and it says like, oh, like we came with this new architecture trained on like hundreds upon hundreds of GPU hours. And, it's, and it destroys the state of the art for a number of these different language tasks. Um, neural network based, everything. Um, but what they did was at the end, they're like, oh, so this works really, really well, but we don't want to publish the model open source yet. Um, even though up to that point, they've been publishing everything open source that they've been doing. Um, but really their reasoning was this, this the technology of deep learning applied to, uh, especially in the, like, the vision and language domains has been accelerating so much over the past couple of years that the essentially defensive measures, it, it seems like defensive measures haven't had enough chance to really be built up against this. Um, so their reasoning was a bad actor could come in and these models are very good at language generation. What happens if a bad actor comes in and knows just enough to essentially create automated software to disseminate, uh, to disseminate disinformation on a massive, massive like DDoS style attack, right? So like, what are you, what are you going to do to try and combat that? Um, and so like, it, it comes sort of with a double-edged sword of the people who are building these algorithms, they, they have the opportunity to have massive influence on essentially any domain, any industry that they want to. Um, but there's a lot of ethical concerns of should these algorithms really be Putting, be being put into place in the specific domains without proper checks associated with them. And so another big thing associated with this is uh, you can think about like, uh, like image uh, computer vision models being biased towards, uh, towards people of um, minority backgrounds. And this sort of gets back to like 
what kind of data was it trained on? Is this going to be placed into a setting where, say, computer vision model is biased towards uh, minority backgrounds? You're and it's used to detect the police or uh, contact the police if it sees suspicious activity. So now you're just encouraging a system that uh, that potentially already has biases. Um, and there's there's a lot of scary feedback loop situations that I, I think people building these algorithms have to be cognizant of um, in order to get these models out uh, in a responsible way. Brought up uh, kind of a very malevolent example of somebody deliberately acting um, in an unethical way. However, um, you know, these algorithms often reflect the authors and their experiences, their tastes. Um, is there a challenge in, in your workplace at NASA in recruiting a diverse um, set of uh, practitioners so that there is some involvement of a diverse viewpoint and diverse experiences as humans? Yeah, definitely. So um, that's actually one of my favorite parts about working at uh, at NASA and JPL in particular. Um, I've never I've never been in a place with so many uh, so many international and foreign nationals working alongside um, from all different cultures. So um, yeah, I mean, in the past like year and a half, I've done everything from uh, I had. Uh, uh, it's like sort of funny, but I had like Indian food for the first time with people who uh, there's a lot of people who uh, came over to the United States for university from India. Um, I know some people who immigrated from Armenia that I worked very closely with. Um, there's such a wide range of backgrounds and cultures that uh, they definitely try and get that diversity implemented there. And that's something that um, yeah, I mean, even in my experiences back in Chicago, that just wasn't the case. Um, it seemed like there's a lot less emphasis on that. Um, but it really does make a huge difference in terms of problem solving, in terms of making sure you're thinking about potential biases and like what type of data you're using. Um, and another note on the, uh, I sort of like the defensive side of AI and where it's at with, um, like we were talking about like, like what happens if a bad actor gets a hold of a like a text generation model or uh, possibly a computer vision GAN model and start generating uh, fake disinformation or people want to uh, people want to affect the like validity of uh, like supply chains and insert like counterfeit electronics, um, which is a very real uh, very real challenge for uh, a number organizations that depend very heavily on the validity of their supply chains for electronics. Um, there's actually a really big DARPA initiative that uh, I've, I've been fortunate enough to be able to uh, start getting involved in or try to, uh, or there's a DARPA project that's getting kicked off. Um, I think it's next year, but they just had the entire uh, proposers day where there's a lot of uh, DOD money actually being pumped into methodologies and defensive measures to try and uh, identify disinformation and fake content that's being generated from some of these methodologies. 
Um, so for example, there's one called uh, semaphore, um, it stands for semantic forensics and where, uh, where sometimes when GANs generate images, uh, one of the popular examples is it'll give a different type of earring for one side of someone's face to the other side of someone's face. Um, but that's something that, uh, most computer vision models wouldn't necessarily pick up on. So the whole project is around, uh, featureizing different components of texts of images and finding uh, discrepancies in between multimedia image sources in order to uh, build defensive mechanisms that adapt uh, continually to this sort of uh, this sort of threat that that's definitely very real in the world we live in. So that's very much the future, I think. And I was going to ask that question: Is what did you see in the future? But in the interest of time, you know, we want to keep this to our twenty-six point one minutes. Um, are there any closing ideas of that you'd like to state regarding the state of AI and your and the future in NASA and, and and any last memories you want to leave the audience? Yeah, so I mean, in terms of like data science and AI as it relates to uh, like JPL space business, um, it's, a, it's definitely a really exciting time to be in this space. Um, if you have these types of skills, you definitely have a lot of uh, you, you definitely have a lot of power to be involved in essentially shaping the next generation of the way people do business. Um, that's definitely very exciting. So That's a wrap. Thank you for joining us on AI Podcast. You can reach us at ai-podcast.com or find us on Spotify or iTunes. Thank you again, and we'll see you soon.